Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome to the latest installment of the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined with Rich Lenkoff of Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich, are you holding up after the Montreal Canadian season is officially over? Well, it was a good run, Joe. It's very, very disappointing, but uh, we'll get them next year. We got a good team coming back. Along with Tina Martini of McDermott, Will, and Emery. Tina, I don't think you're a big hockey fan, but uh, glad to see you anyway. I'm a big fan when the Hawks are winning, that's for sure. <laughs> that's all of us, absolutely. Well, we start our show today with our headliner, uh, Gloria Allred, uh, inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, most well-known women's rights attorney, and representing a lot of the accusers of Bill Cosby's sexual assaults who was just recently overturned last week, and many of those accusers are not happy about his release, but Gloria is a friend of the podcast as well. Gloria, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, Joe. Gloria, so the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, as Joe mentioned, they found two reasons that Cosby is now free. One of them is because of your clients, the prior bad act accusers, testif- were allowed to testify in his criminal trial. The court said that that was improper. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Actually, Rich, that's not the holding of their decision. They only had one basis for deciding to vacate the judgment, the conviction of Bill Cosby. And that basis was that they alleged that there was a promise made by the first prosecutor, District Attorney Bruce Castor, not to prosecute, that based on that non-prosecution agreement, which, by the way, the prosecution disputed that there was any such agreement. Certainly, there was nothing in writing. Uh, Based on that, Bill Cosby then proceeded to testify in Andrea Constant's civil case against him and made what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said were incriminating statements And then those incriminating statements were used in the prosecution by the next DA, Kevin Steele, who did prosecute Mr. Cosby, that the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania decided that Mr. Cosby would not have testified in uh, the the, uh, civil case. Instead, he would have asserted his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and declined to answer certain questions uh, because he was relying on that promise not to prosecute. The court decided that wouldn't be fair uh, to use his statements against him and that a promise by a prosecutor should be enforced. And they felt that there was no remedy except to vacate the judgment. So now he's not going to be prosecuted in Pennsylvania. As to the prior bad act witnesses that you mentioned, Rich, I did represent uh, the majority of them in those criminal cases against Mr. Cosby. Um, And it is very devastating to many of them to have that judgment vacated uh, and Mr. Cosby released from prison. However, the court was clear that they did not 
uh, vacate the conviction based on anything to do with the prior bad act witnesses, that because they vacated it based on the due process violation, which I've just described, uh, the non-prosecution agreement, they did not have to reach and did not reach the issue of prior bad act witnesses. So, Gloria, let's talk a little bit more about your clients. I mean, understandably, they're very upset. It took a lot for them to have the strength to come forward and confront their abuser only to have him walk free. Can you please tell us a little bit more about your your clients and how they're doing right now? Well, I did represent 33 accusers of Bill Cosby, mm-hmm. and you can see many of them in the Netflix documentary about me and my women's rights battles over many years. Uh, it's called Seeing, like you're wearing glasses, Seeing All Red. It's still streaming on Netflix. Uh, but having said that, uh, yes, many of them are very upset. They feel there was no justice in this case. I do want to add, however, that everyone should remember that in his obituary, I have no doubt that uh, his obituary will refer to the fact that he was convicted in Pennsylvania of three felonies, aggravated indecent assault of Andrea Constant. Of course, it will also state that that judgment uh, or verdict was uh, vacated by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court on the grounds that I described. But it will still be there. He will still have shame. His name uh, will always be associated with that case. Having said that, I also have the only remaining civil case against Mr. Cosby in the nation. And that case, we're going back to court on August 13th for a status conference. We have It's a case uh, in which uh, we allege that our client uh, in this lawsuit uh, alleges that she was uh, victimized by Mr. Cosby when she was a minor. Uh, sexually abused as a child at the Playboy Mansion in Southern California. And now that Mr. Cosby can no longer be prosecuted in Pennsylvania, uh, we are going to proceed to uh, set a date uh, uh, for his deposition, his testimony under oath in the civil case. Uh, We have been awaiting this uh, conclusion of the criminal case in order to take his deposition. And now we can move forward. He had objected to the taking of our second deposition in this civil case. But over his objection some time ago, the court ruled we could take it, but we would have to wait. In other words, it was a stay until the conclusion of the criminal case. So now we're looking forward to taking Mr. Cosby's deposition in this civil case. Laura, I'm glad you cleared up the earlier issue because my understanding was that the court did look at the two issues. They had uh, four issues that they could have looked at. They actually looked at two, and the prior bad acts was one of them. But I thought that that was one of the bases for overturning the lower court's decision. Uh, you are obviously, you know, way more knowledgeable than we are on yeah. that. So I'm glad you cleared that up. But yeah, I did. Prior- re- I did read the decision because you're correct. I saw a lot of reporting that that had something to do with it. Uh, they mentioned it, but then at the end they said they didn't have to reach that issue uh, because of their finding on the due process issue. So the strategy to bring in these prior bad act witnesses obviously was a controversial one. The court allowed it. What do you think the future is in litigation for prior bad act testimony in light of this uh, decision? Well, that's a great great question because it is an issue that will be litigated in the future. In the past, In Pennsylvania, 
these prior bad act witnesses, some people call them Me Too witnesses, uh, have been allowed in certain cases, depending on many factors uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, so I'm, my guess is it's going to be the subject of more litigation as to who and how many in the future in Pennsylvania. It's also an issue in New York. In New York, it's called Molyneux witnesses, and there were Molyneux witnesses, Me Too witnesses, admitted on the Harvey Weinstein criminal case. I represented the main uh, victim for who, who testified bravely, and he was uh, sentenced to 20 years after he was convicted uh, based on my client Mimi's uh, testimony in the Weinstein criminal case. I also represented some of the Me Too witnesses there. So on appeal, uh, my guess is that Mr. Weinstein, who is appealing from that conviction, will also uh, make arguments about the Me Too witnesses there. Likewise, in California, uh, Mr. Weinstein will soon be extradited from New York to L.A., to face prosecution here in Los Angeles. I represent two of the alleged victims for whom charges have been filed here in this case and potential Me Too witnesses. My guess is Weinstein's attorneys will also make the argument that they sh- their testimony should not be admitted here in California. So it's a live issue, an important issue. Gloria, I was so struck by uh, a recent event that you were involved in. You celebrated your birthday recently uh, with a, an 18-year-old uh, in Florida who um, looked up greatly to you, as we all do. And the subject of abortion rights came up during this event. And you said how concerned you were for the future of abortion rights, having been a lifelong um, you know, warrior on that issue. We, ju- we will talk shortly to two Supreme Court experts about how that issue will be taken up by the next term. What are your thoughts on the future of uh, this important right? Rich, thank you so much for remembering my birthday. It's okay to say it was my 80th birthday. I think uh, some women don't want to say their age. Uh, they're embarrassed or ashamed, but I say we should get a medal pinned on us for surviving as women, given so much gender violence and inequities against women in our culture. Having said that, yes, for my birthday, I had a special guest, Paxton Smith. Uh, She's actually from Texas. She was the valedictorian at her high school graduation who tore up her approved speech and instead gave a very courageous speech uh, in support of the women's right to choose Uh, legal abortion and against laws that have been passed in Texas restricting a woman's right to choose abortion. I am concerned about the Mississippi case that will be decided, I believe, next year uh, in uh, in reference to their extremely restrictive uh, abortion laws that they have been passed, that have been passed and that the Supreme Court will review, uh, has accepted for review because I am. It is an obvious challenge to Roe v. Wade, that 1973 United States Supreme Court decision, uh, which found that women do have a constitutional right at certain stages of their pregnancy to abort. <laughs> Excuse me. Which women have a constitutional right uh, to, to choose abortion. God bless you. Thank you. I, I'm allergic to any decisions by the United States Supreme Court uh, involving abortion, given the refer- recently uh, essentially newly constituted uh, conservatives on the Supreme Court. That's our esteemed guest, Gloria Allred. Again, check out her Netflix documentary, Seeing Allred, where you can hear from some of those Bill Cosby accusers. Gloria, thanks 
once again for sharing your time with us. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you, Rich. Uh, happy you birthday, Gloria. All the happy Thank you. Birthday. I am woman. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Britney Spears' situation has gained support month by month, but one of the biggest findings of her conservatorship is the fact that she says she's forced to have an IUD without her consent. With that, we bring in Rebecca Coakley, a disability rights program officer at the Ford Foundation. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Rebecca, as Joe mentioned, Britney Spears' conservatorship has been in the news nonstop now for many months. And her jaw-dropping testimony a couple of weeks ago about not being able to get married and have a baby under the current arrangement sent shockwaves that has really sparked a heated debate about reproductive and disability rights. What's the latest with Britney Spears? I would first want to acknowledge the fact that the disability rights movement have been carrying the banner for the Free Britney campaign since day one. There are over 1.3 million people living under active conservatorships right now, very similar to Britney. And it's also important to note that Britney has been very public about the fact that she's a person that lives with bipolar disorder. And that's really important to note because that's the diagnosis that has then enabled her her family and the professional folks in the room to actually petition for the arbitrary nature of this conservatorship. You know, people with disabilities and specifically people with intellectual disabilities and mental illness are often seen as less capable of making decisions for themselves, whether it be about their body, what they do for a living, their personal relationships. And this can lead to these petitions being filed in many cases when they're just not appropriate and not what the person needs. So why is that in this case? Why is this not what Britney needs? And, and, and I also want to reference a quote that was really interesting of yours that said, Britney Spears has experienced the nexus of sexism and sanism in the public eye and now in the court system. So why is this happening with Britney and why is this not the right program for her? There are all kinds of options that can be taken into place prior to moving for a conservatorship. For years, there's been the option to for courts to push for what's called um, supported decision-making programming, which allows the person who is clearly, you know, in this case of Brittany, um, was clearly experiencing the, the side effects of her mental illness, the ability to pull together a team of folks and be actively part of the decision-making process, be able to advocate for what she wants to do, where she wants to be, 
at an equal level as the attorneys and her family members in the room. That is clearly not what happened here. And instead, we have we see that Britney's labor, Britney's being forced to work seven days a week on times when she doesn't want to. Britney's access to bodily autonomy, the, the forcing of the IUD, the denial of the ability to get married. These are all things that disabled people deal with here in the United States. And honestly, one of the biggest issues when it comes to why people push back against guardianship is that ability to date, to make decisions about your health care to be in relationships with people without having to ask for permission or have paperwork signed um, to enable you to go to the movies or to be in a significant relationship. So Rebecca, Britney Spears situation has actually been compared to the 1927 Supreme Court case Buck versus Bell, which held that a Virginia law, which allowed for a woman who was in a mental institution to be sterilized did not violate the Constitution. We know you've commented on this case before. Do you care to comment for our listeners? Buck v. Bell is very personal to me. Um, I am a mother of three, and when I had my second child, I have dwarfism, which is, or I have achondroplasia, which is the most common form of dwarfism. When I had my daughter, the anesthesiologist actively advocated for me to be sterilized while I was laying on the table in the operating room in front of my husband and in front of my OBGYN, both of whom were very quick to step in and say, absolutely not. Um, but I think people don't realize that Buck v. Bell is still the law. It's, it is still perfectly legal. And it actually came up during Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, the fact that he upheld Buck v. Bell in ruling that two women with intellectual disabilities in a DC institution could be sterilized are actually forced to undergo an abortion without their consent and without their their being informed of what was happening to them. And so this is really a serious issue. People don't realize that this is something that happens on a regular basis. And it's actually one of the first rights that's most often taken away from disabled people, the right to control your, your right to have children. Rebecca, really quickly, our last question is why, just break it down for our listeners in, in lay terms, why does this take so long? Why is this so complicated, right? We're, we're following the story and we're watching, you know, videos of Brittany. She seems to most observers to be sane, to be in charge of her affairs, to be cognizant, to be able to run a, mil- a multi-million dollar operation and earn lots of money for many other people. Is this a money thing? How much of that is influenced um is influencing these decisions. And why isn't the judge just stepping in for the best interest of Brittany and saying, enough, let her go? I do believe that there are a lot of people profiting off of this. I mean, the fact that she's even having to pay the lawyer's fees for the lawyers arguing against, you know, her pushing back on this conservatorship says a lot. I also do think that the fact that, you know, this is what people with mental illness live with in this country. We live in a country that the minute there's a mass shooting, we blame people with mental illness. The minute there's school violence, we blame people with mental illness. And the response is always, let's take away people's rights, even if they haven't been found guilty of a crime. This is a very sanest country, and this is ableism. Our country is grounded in that. And until the, until the courts start recognizing that, we're, we're not going to see the change. I mean, as it is, over 20 states now currently allow the removal of a child from a parent with a disability solely on the basis of a parent's disability diagnosis. The, the judicial system is, was, and always will be fundamentally ableist until we start seeing some significant shifts. Again, that's Rebecca Coakley, Disability Rights Program Officer at the Ford Foundation. Rebecca, thanks so much for the insight today. Thank you so much.
We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Moving along in the Legal Face-Off podcast, you're on WGN Radio, and unfortunately, the death toll from the Surfside condo collapse in Florida has now reached 94 people. With that, we bring an accident lawyer, Patrick Montoya, a partner at Colson, Hicks, and Idson. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Joe. Rich, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, Patrick, last week on Wednesday, you were in a Miami courtroom lining up to speak to the judge about your representation. Explain to us what was going on in court and um, why there are so many attorneys involved. Absolutely. I mean, as you know, you just mentioned we have 94 deaths that we know of in this case already. Um, This was a status conference, uh, one of the initial ones that the judge held in this case um, in person. And the judge made a call at that hearing. Uh, to lawyers to work these cases and to work these cases uh, pro bono. And uh, we've answered that call. And I know that's something we we're going to talk about today. Uh, but, you know, just in terms of the litigation perspective, uh, Judge Hansman's probably, you know, one of the best and brightest we have on the bench was a career, a career commercial litigator, did very well um, in our legal community and has since elevated to the bench. And he's being very aggressive with these cases. Um, he's made it our charge to and in his words, get the money in the people's hands who need it and do it quickly and do it efficiently. Uh, no extensions for time, no nothing. Just keep the case moving. Patrick, I'm a defense lawyer. I defend a lot of these kind of cases. You're a plaintiff's lawyer so frequently. We've had, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of plaintiff's lawyers on our podcast over seven years. So often plaintiffs, uh, personal injury lawyers especially, get a bad rap, right? Um, you hear the term ambulance chasers. You hear about attorneys, you know, running to accident sites. In this case, to your point, you're all doing this pro bono. Speak to us why you're doing that and why you feel it's important to devote this uh, uh, time that you could otherwise be spending on, you know, fee-based work to these victims. Look, I, I, it's, it's pretty simple. I, I'm blessed, right? The law has been very good to me. It's been good to my firm um, over the years. I've been at this over 20 years. Um, had some big hits on cases over the years. Uh, worked the Chinese drywall cases, the BP cases going back 20 years ago, the Menorah Gardens uh, cemetery litigation down here, um, you know, several settlements over a hundred million dollars. The law has been good to me. Uh, this is our community's nine 11. Um, it was a call by the judge to step up and we thought it was the right thing to do. And I, and part of it is look what you just said, you know, ambulance chasers, the bolters, et cetera, that, that gives us all a bad name. Um, I don't know that I'll be able to reverse that, uh, by myself or, or with George, who's just joining us, who's also doing these cases pro bono, but it's, it's the right thing to do. And I hope it's a call to others uh, that will answer the challenge. George, thanks for joining us. Great answer, Patrick. George, thanks for joining us. You're also one of the attorneys who is working pro bono, who was in court last week on Wednesday um, at the status conference. Explain to our listeners, if you would, the legal theory briefly. We've only got a few minutes, but briefly, George, the legal theory that you'll be pursuing and against whom? Well, right now, as perhaps Patrick alluded to before I joined, uh, there is an extensive discovery that has been embarked on. We have filed two separate 
three separate wrongful death lawsuits now. And we have named, I believe, is 12 defendants. So this is all about accountability. This is all about someone who shares in the responsibility. What individuals believe is that the last one who had anything to do with this building is who is responsible for this collapse. And nothing could be further from the truth. This building has been infirm for years and for many, many years and individuals who have appreciated these cracks, this deterioration and on and on, they all bear a responsibility. So the long and short of it is we're going to now embark on extensive discovery. There's going to be extensive document reviews and we will see who in fact bears a responsibility, whether it be 1% responsible or 90% responsible for this collapse. But this is all about accountability. Patrick, you are a South Florida plaintiff's attorney. You've handled many, as George has, many cases involving condo associations. You can't do work down there without having to deal with condo associations. You know, my dad lives about 10 miles north of where this tragedy happened. He lives in a uh, condo by the beach has for many years. I personally served on a condo association here in Chicago for about 10 years. Um, talk to us about the, dic- the dichotomy in responsibility if you're on a condo association, because it looks like in this case that unfortunately the can was pushed down the road. And it's not uncommon for condo associations to not want to put pr- money properly in reserve, instead having to deal with you know a big bill later on, or unfortunately in this case, a huge loss of life. Talk to us about the dichotomy there between those responsibilities for a condo association. Rich, you, you nailed it. it it's, it's the classic push-pull or, or almost a conflict of interest, right? So I represent a lot of, I've represented associations in the past on construction defect case. I also have a, a significant construction defect practice. And, you know, I tell people, they ask you, what do you do? I say, I sue big companies who do bad things. And that generally ends up being general contractors, subcontractors, developers in, in these large condominium towers in South Florida. But the board is always faced with the decision of, you know, do I pass a special assessment? What do I do? Essentially, you're taxing your neighbors, right? Because that's really what's happening. You're passing those costs down to fix the building on your neighbors. And of course, the board is concerned, and rightfully so, about their property values and the property values of their neighbors. And they're concerned about once you put that out there, once you put the, the bad news out there, what happens to the property values? Those property values tank, right? And then you've got the double hit of insurance. Our insurance premium is going to go up. And then it just makes the building more expensive to live in as your property values go down. So the board members are always potentially in conflict that way with what they should do. Of course, they've got a fiduciary duty under Florida law, but they're also humans and they're also a lay board. They're not a board full of expert engineers, architects, et cetera. So what can they do? And we see it in this case, they have to rely upon an engineer, for example, uh, to know what they need to do. So it's it's a tough situation for board members to be in, but you know, here the, the the papers say what they say, and they have to rely upon those professionals. George, we know that Champlain Tower was going through recertification process. Briefly, explain to our listeners what that means in South Florida, and whether the forty year period should be shortened to avoid tragedies like this. Undoubtedly, but I want to take off and echo what Patrick was just saying a moment ago, because uh, there's really two main things board members are asked to do, aesthetics and structural assessments. And as we know, aesthetics have to do with awnings and the paint is ugly. And nobody wants to tax themselves, as Patrick said, 
or their neighbors, but it's all about education. And the bottom line is that these board members bear responsibility. But at the end of the day, as Patrick mentioned, they are lay individuals and they have to rely on individuals who didn't stress and didn't appreciate the severity of this. Now, with regards to the 40-year certification, that's a certification that has been long in place. Will it change? I certainly think so, especially properties that are adjacent or near waters, because as we know, salt can cause corrosion and on and on. But this 40-year certification historically has been a good thing, and it is an extensive, arduous, it's not the most comprehensive and arduous process, but it's it's a process whereby a building or a structure gets a seal of approval that after 40 years, it is doing well. And you don't start it at the 40-year mark, you start it before. And that's what Champlain Towers was going through. And all indications were that this building was not safe and sound. But then we have, for example, the city of Surfside engineer and employee who's giving everyone the thumbs up and giving them a rated A grade. Long and short of it is, again, that this 40-year certification, I am certain that the only good that is going to come out of this catastrophe is that the building codes in not only South Florida, but probably in the whole United States are going to be revamped and revisited. And with regards to the 40-year recertification, perhaps we will shrink it down to 25 years or something along those lines. But we just need more vigilance. That's the reality. George and Patrick, we have about two minutes left, so I'd like to give each of you one minute to talk about your the individuals that you're representing, um, the families of some of the folks that were lost, unfortunately, in this tragedy, and what you're trying to get uh, accomplished for them. George, we'll start with you. We'll end with Patrick. Again, I want to thank you for this opportunity, and I want to apologize. I was actually speaking with a client of this catastrophe, and hence why I was delayed in jumping on. Um, it's just something that I think... I speak for Patrick. We're all very proud of to be a small part in helping these families. When the judge called us to action, uh, I know personally of several lawyers that ran for the hills and many of us stepped up and acknowledged what our duty and our responsibility is to these families. This is a, an impact that is just so indescribable to this community. And we just all need to do this. Having had the privilege of representing many similarly situated families, I've been able to hold their hand and speak with them about their tragedies. But every single tragedy is so unique when you hear the stories. Like one client of mine, very briefly, lived literally across the street from his mom and dad. And he woke up and he heard the noise at one o'clock, one thirty in the morning. And he started to scream at his wife, telling her, my parents' building isn't there. My parents' building isn't there. So it's our duty now to get some accountability and try to give some answers to these families that so desperately need it. And again, thank you, Rich, for having me. Patrick. Rich, yeah, let, let me tell you a little bit, another reason for the, these pro bono efforts and why I think they're so important. We're trying to model what we're doing on 9-11. I've, I've said this community, this is our community's 9-11, and lawyers stepped up in 9-11 to represent people 
on a pro bono basis. And why that's so important is one of the reasons federal legislation and federal funds uh, flowed to the 9-11 victims was because the lawyers stepped aside. There's no legislator that I can think of that would pass a bill where lawyers could profit off it. So if lawyers can step aside as a, a group, as a community, perhaps there's a legislative um, fund or a victim's compensation fund that could be done. So that's another one of my motivations, frankly, which is, again, to the judge's call is to get compensation as quickly as possible into people's hands. The Tory family, uh, for example, one of the families we represent, they're the American dream. Uh, Gonzalo Torre was a, a Cuban national that, that fled Cuba uh, during the revolution. Um, his wife, uh, Maria, was in the Czech Republic. He went there to study. The short version is they both ended up fleeing communism from two different countries, took their family to Canada, where they emigrated, and then down to South Florida, where Gonzalo had an extremely successful career as a metallurgist. Uh, they bought multiple properties on the beach. The children are wonderful adult children that have raised families of their own. They're utterly heartbroken. These were, this was supposed to be their parents' golden years. And they have grandkids that just adored their grandparents. So anything at all that we could do to bring them some sort of justice. And you know, we all say it. You interview plaintiff's lawyers. There's no amount of money that's going to bring grandpa and grandma back, but we're going to do our best to make sure that that amount of money, something is there that will symbolize what they did and what they've done for their family and for their community. So again, thank you both for the opportunity. The judge of this case called both Patrick and George the best of the bar, so we appreciate your insight today and joining with us today, guys. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Affordable Care Act, leaders, First Amendment rights, and Justice Stephen Breyer's possible retirement. All that more to get to regarding the Supreme Court. With that, we bring in a couple of law professors. Professor Stephen Wormiel of American University, Washington College of Law. Professor Wormiel, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. And Professor Aziz Huck from the Law School at the University of Chicago. Thanks so much for being here, Professor Huck. Good to be here. So let's jump into some of our favorite cases from the last term. One of them I thought was really interesting was, you know, officially known as the cheerleader case. In an 8-1 decision, Professor Huck, uh, the court held that a Pennsylvania high school district had violated the First Amendment rights 
of a student by punishing her for vulgar social, a vulgar social media message that was sent when she was not on high school grounds. That's the important part here. Uh, it was the first time in more than 50 years that a high school student won a free speech case against this or in the Supreme Court. What was the distinguishing factor in this case? Obviously, it's different in the social media era. And explain why that was such an important case uh, in, in this cheerleader situation. I, this is not just the first time a high school uh, student claiming a First Amendment right has won in 50 years. Uh, it's the first time a high school student has won uh, in any constitutional rights cases. There's a whole line of Fourth Amendment cases that the court has decided against uh, high school students. So this is a, a remarkable decision in that it goes against a long-standing tie uh, in which the court has rolled back rights of uh, children in secondary schools. So the, the, the real key to this decision is that it involved two factors that the court did not know what to make of. And the court is very clear that although it decides the case on behalf of the cheerleader, it's not setting forth any grand pronouncements about the scope of students' free speech rights. The court focuses on two things. The first thing is that uh, the cheerleader posted to her uh, social media account while she was off school grounds, outside school hours, right? That's the first thing. So this was something that happens outside of the school. And then second, uh, this is speech that happens on social media. And the court's very careful to say, look, speech on social media is a double-edged sword. It's something that, uh, it, it's a uniquely, it's a unique kind of off-site uh, uh, speech that can disrupt school, but it's also a really important part of the public sphere. And we're not going to say anything grand and sweeping because we just don't know enough about how to regulate this, uh, uh, this, this new kind of speech uh, to be certain of what we're doing. Now, Professor Romeo, the court, I think, gave an out to future litigants um, and especially schools by saying that not all speech is protected, right? If you are engaged in speech that might you know, harm a school or cause, you know, uh, some kind of discord, then the school still has grounds to bar that speech. Is that is that a fair understanding of what the court said? Yes, I think Professor Huck's summary was a good one. Um, the, the court really kind of split the difference. It's a significant ruling for the cheerleader. But at the same time, the court said uh, in the event of bullying, in the event of harassment aimed at an individual, in the event of threats, Schools may still be able to regulate speech that takes place away from school. And so, you know, the, the, this could have been a more significant case if the court gave real hard practical advice to parents, students, school districts. But the court kind of split the difference. And, and so I think we will see more cases and more litigation to kind of clarify where these lines are. So turning now to the Affordable Care Act, in a 7-2 opinion, the Supreme Court ruled that the plaintiffs did not have standing to proceed with the challenge because they, quote, failed to show a concrete particularized injury fairly traceable to the defendant's conduct. So the court did not address the issues of the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act or the severability of the individual mandate. Professor Wormiel, will we see further challenges to Obamacare? I, I would never say never, um, but I think this may have been the end of the line. 
there, there are certainly the, the states that were opposed to Obamacare and that brought these challenges in the first place may not give up because they uh, have an agenda to try to bring down Obamacare. Uh, but they're kind of out of legal avenues uh, that they can pursue. The The problem here was they didn't have the kind of injury that gets them into court. And it's hard to see how states in particular uh, will will find an appropriate injury in some future case. So it may be that we're at the end of uh, this kind of bring down Obamacare litigation. Professor Huck, do you have anything to add? I, I agree with Professor Wormiel. I, I, I think that th- this case was obviously brought because uh, the Affordable Care Act was a, a partisan dividing point. I, I think that the, the, the politics of the Affordable Care Act have changed and attacking the Affordable Care Act I think if you're a Republican now, is just not as uh, politically attractive. Doesn't have the same payoffs uh, as it had a few years ago. I, I think uh, if we're thinking about this domain, the area that's going to attract litigation is the question of whether and how Medicaid can be expanded to states that, under the original ACA, declined uh, to take it uh, and whose uh, refusal to take it was. Uh, upheld by the Supreme Court in the Sebelius case in 2012. Uh, Democrats in Congress are talking about uh, extending Medicaid. And if that happens uh, with respect to states that up until now have refused the expansion, I I think we'll see new litigation on that point. So turning now to voting rights, on the last day of the term, the court upheld a controversial Arizona law that limits how voters may return absentee ballots. This was a 6-3 majority. Uh, Professor Hucht, let's start with you. Do you think that this is a preview of how the conservative bloc will look in the future? I I do. I I don't think that the Arizona laws in question, which concerned uh, the collection of ballots by third parties and what's called out-of-precinct voting, are terribly important. Yeah, they're they're laws that impose hurdles upon uh, individuals' ability to cast a ballot, Uh, Do they make a big difference in the grand scheme of things? No. Uh, Indeed, it's telling that in the Brunovich case, you you didn't have a voting rights group suing um, under these, uh, challenging these these statutes. It was the Democratic National uh, Committee. So what's really important about Brunovich is is first that it's 6-3, like you said, and then second, uh, uh, what it does to a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Um, where the Congress that enacted the Voting Rights Act was really concerned about any kind of statute that imposed a a, a greater burden upon minorities uh, in comparison to the rest of the the state's election framework. Uh, What the court has done in Brunovich is to essentially require a Voting Rights Act plaintiff to make an extraordinary showing that a particular element of a state's voting apparatus is exceedingly burdensome and exceedingly burdensome in racially disparate ways. So it's dramatically raised the burdens on Voting Rights Act cases in in ways that will make uh, future challenges, including challenges to statutes passed in Texas, Georgia, uh, and other uh, states in the last six months, much more difficult to break. That, I think, 
is a signal of where the uh, majority of the court is going. Uh, really not uh, focusing upon and accounting for the ways that states are quite deliberately um, erecting asymmetrical barriers to the franchise. Professor Wormiel, do you have anything to add? No, I, I agree completely. Um, uh, you know, I think this was not entirely surprising if we go back to the 2020 election, while the court as a formal matter stayed out of all the challenges brought by the, the, the then President Trump and, and his supporters and lawyers. Uh, Justice Alito, who ended up writing this decision uh, on a number of occasions, wrote separate opinions as the court was turning down these cases, saying we really ought to be taking this concern about voter fraud seriously. And so I think, uh, you know, that's, that, that's where we came, was uh, there is now a critical mass on the Supreme Court that thinks voter fraud is something the states really ought to have flexibility to do something about, and they were willing to twist the Voting Rights Act to, to serve that purpose. Professor Wormiel, let's wrap up with uh, the retire Breyer movement uh, that's in vogue right now. So uh, in the next term, Justice Breyer will be 83 years old, and there have been calls by many progressive, many Democrats for him to retire while uh, his successor could be appointed by Joe Biden uh, and not by a possible Republican successor, making an 8-2 conservative block. Um, you wrote many books about uh, Justice Brennan. You have covered the Supreme Court for many years through very many different outlets. What are your thoughts about whether Justice Breyer feels any such pressure to retire? How much that factors into his decision as to whether he returns next term? It's hard to know how, how much uh, uh, it will influence him. I, I think that the window for him to retire has passed. It's not impossible. He could do it today. He could do it tomorrow. But the the tradition is to do it at the end of the term, if not earlier, to give the president the most amount of time to, to pick a successor and hopefully have that successor in place before the next court term. And so the the clock, I think, has ticked um, on, on Breyer. He, you know, he, he worked for Senator Edward Kennedy for a number of years on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, as chief judge of the First Circuit before he went on the Supreme Court, he dealt with, with Congress and the political structure all the time. I don't, I don't think he's unaware of the factors or the pressures, but it's a pretty good job. And I think he thinks he's still doing it pretty well. He's in good health, um, compared to Ginsburg, compared to others who retired in, in this age window. Uh, he's probably in the best health of, of all of them. Um, and, and, you know, it's not a coincidence that the two cases we started with, uh, the Affordable Care Act case and the cheerleader case, were both written by Justice Breyer. We've got abortion coming up next term. We've got gun rights coming up next term. I, I think he thinks he's still got work to do. Professor Hawk, last word to you. We got about 90 seconds. Of course, you clerked for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who famously said that one of her biggest regrets was not having a Democrat name her successor. How do you feel Justice Breyer is weighing these factors? I can't imagine that he wants 
an eight to majority to be part of his legacy as he leaves the Supreme Court, especially given the given the cases that are coming up in the next term. Yeah. I, so he, he still has a chance to retire at the end of the 20, uh, the year that the Supreme Court term that ends in 2022. So let, let's not forget that. Um, he's already hired law clerks for next year. So he's, he's done and dusted for this year. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 I think that democratic justices are inclined to view the court as a neutral body that is above politics. And sometimes that um, leads them to take decisions that are against their ideological interests. A couple of distinguished panelists with us today, Professor Rormiel, also on the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and past chair of the ABA section of Civil Rights and Social Justice. And like Rich said, Professor Huck, a former clerk of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Keep an eye out for his book, The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Time for the fun, well, the really fun segment of the Legal Faceoff podcast. It's the Legal Grab Bag. Our two guests today, we'll start with Daniel Connor of Daniel Cotter, that is, of Howard & Howard Law for Business. Daniel, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me again. And Michael Milstein, who's going to uh, give us the lowdown on how Louis C.K. was last night, but he's also of Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Michael, thanks so much for being here. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Hey, Joe, we got to say that both are return guests, and that's important, particularly important with uh, Daniel, because we get to say, of course, wait for it, welcome back, Cotter. <laughs> for, for those young at home, you may not get that reference, but for everybody else, <laughs> it's it's not worth looking up. You're our Gabe Kaplan. There you go. I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do understand the reference, even though I'm young and at home, but uh, I, I, I know it because of the theme song, so maybe we'll try to work that in. Somehow. Make it a comeback on the Applebee's commercials, by the way, that are all that over is. every sporting event in history now. You can't watch any sporting event without hearing... That Applebee's Welcome Back Cotter thing. Never, never seen an episode. You're missing Didn't out. Miss anything? One of the great TV mustache slash Afro combinations in <laughs> in history. Well, John Travolta's big start. That's right. Speaking of a big start, let's go to our first topic. We talked about this earlier in the podcast, but Tina, uh, at least 94 people have now been uh, labeled as dead from the condo collapse down in Florida, and the families of those people are looking for answers. Yeah. So, Joe, I mean, it's just beyond tragic. Um, my firm actually happens to have an office in Miami. It's one of our main offices. And just hearing the accounts from my colleagues about the people they know who know folks or who actually people that they know who were in this terrible tragedy. Um, as Joe mentioned, as of this morning, 94 people have been confirmed dead with 22 potentially unaccounted for um, the lawsuits have been coming in fast and furious pretty much on a daily basis, naming a variety of parties, um, all really with the attempt to look for answers and to try to hold those accountable who should be held accountable. There are suits being filed against the Buildings Condo Association, the city of Surfside, um, the engineering firms that inspected the building, um, as well as the developer that was responsible for the new development that went up right adjacent to the building. Um, Attorneys are already showing up in court and being encouraged by judges to organize among themselves to try to keep 
the proceedings as streamlined as possible. And also pro bono representations are being encouraged, particularly for the family members. So, Rich, I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg with this. I know we talked about this earlier, but, um, you know, people want answers. And I think it's going to take a while for us to really get the full picture here. Yeah, what's also interesting is the attorneys who are on with us earlier, uh, they can't go back to court this week as they were supposed to because the courthouse is shut down for structural issues. Uh, they just discover some major structural issues with that very courtroom that they appeared in last Wednesday. So um, I think, you know, we have frequently on our show lots of plaintiff's uh, lawyers, PI lawyers. And, you know, I'm often the one railing against them and calling a lot of the litigation frivolous, being a defense lawyer myself. We do a lot of condo association law at our firm. But, you know, as you heard from our uh, from our guests earlier, this is an area that's hard to fight back against. Right. I mean, these are attorneys who are doing pro bono work. Inevitably, they'll get some, you know, paid work from it. But I think I believe them when they're saying that they're doing this to represent these families who have been through such tragedy. And, you know, if you're someone who enjoys things like seatbelts, airbags, um, safe food, at the end of the day, that all came to be because of lawsuits, right? They didn't come to me because companies thought it was in their financial best interest to add the expense of an airbag or to make food safe. It came through litigation. So hopefully through this litigation, we'll all uh, benefit from safer buildings down the road. Dan, what are your thoughts on that? I agree with you, Rich. And I think, you know, this is a tragic event. And, and like all tragedies like this, especially on a big scale, there's going to be a lot of soul searching and a lot of finding of responsible parties. I started my career at Lord Bissell and Brook, uh, now Lock Lord, and uh, we did some construction defense. And like you, a lot of the, the cases seem to be bogus. But when, like the Minneapolis Hilton crashed, I think it was, and uh, some other uh, tragic events like this, you really do look. And, you know, I think there will be a lot of fact finding in terms of the, the alleged report that there was uh, structural damages that needed to be fixed. And, you know, look at Chicago, we, we see a lot of reports now of other buildings that are in the same state or have significant structural issues. And like you said, the courthouse itself is now uh, being damaged. And so part of this, I think, too, is a, an overall discussion of our infrastructure and just what our nation looks like with these old buildings. And, and uh, it is tragic. Yeah, Milson, you've lived in the city. You've lived in condos like I have. I served on my condo association board before my where I, where I live now for many years, you know, the issue is you're, you're staffing uh, these boards, these condo boards with lay people right. and they don't want to do the job, but they don't have the background to determine the viability of some of these structures yet. They're making decisions that in this case, unfortunately led to this massive loss of, of life. Well, there's, there's a couple other things when, on a larger board and larger associations, a lot of people don't want to deal with the special assessment because they're, right. they're moving. They want to get out of that building as fast as possible because they know they're moving. They want to get out for that special assessment. And that's a huge thing that always comes into play. But when this happens and you're a lawyer and you think about this from a legal perspective, it's like you go back to your law school and it's called race ipsa loquitur, which is a thing speaks for itself that obviously something's wrong here. And, you know, from a legal standpoint, somebody's going to, you know, have to pay up on this because obviously something was wrong. And, uh, you know, we'll see, a lot of lawsuits, as you guys have said, but out of tragedy comes a lot of progression, progress, and hopefully that will be the case here. Yeah, but interesting. I think I read the policy limit was $46 million, which, yeah. you know, isn't even scratching the surface of what it's going to cost in this case. So 
Uh, it's going to be one of the more expensive um, piece of litigation in American history. I thought it was interesting, too, that they're giving $2,000 for burial expenses, which is, you know, anyone who's ever had to bury someone knows that that is not even anywhere close to the expenses needed. Right. Moving on to the topic of former President Donald Trump suing Facebook, Twitter and YouTube, Rich, claiming that he was wrongfully censored. He's back. I mean, you know, I will say that uh, things are a little lonelier, slower, um, you know, less exciting in the Biden era. Tina, we uh, thank our former president for nothing else except giving us tons of content on Legal Face Off for many years. And here he is back giving us some great content. He is suing social media. I mean, that's all you need to know. Um, obviously, you know, it's it's complete nonsense, right? So, uh, social media are private entities. They don't have, I mean, the, the story is he is suing them for violating his First Amendment rights by kicking him off Twitter, Facebook, etc. I think he's banned for life on Twitter. He's banned for a certain period on Facebook. And in a you know press conference last week, um, he said that he's filing a lawsuit. And I guess it doesn't matter to him. Of course, we know that because he files baseless lawsuits all the time and will forever do so. There's a provision that uh, says that these are private entities, right? 1966 law that says these are private entities. They're not subject to these First Amendment arguments. And when you sign on to a platform, you agree to their terms and they have the right to kick you off for uh, according to the rules that they put forth. That's what they've done here. And now Trump, <laughs> Trump is, of course, filing a lawsuit. At the same time, by the way, you know, his former CFO, Weisselberg, is uh, negotiating with prosecutors to potentially bring down the Trump organization. So welcome back, Trump. Welcome back, Cotter, of course. But welcome back, Trump, to Legal Faceoff. You're always going to find a home uh, on our podcast. I know Milstein's a big supporter of Trump. Where do you stand on this lawsuit? Uh, well, you know, as Rich said, so the First Amendment arguments are absolutely ridiculous. The Facebook does not owe you any First Amendment protections, either does any of these other companies. Um, but what what what, I, what always bugs me about these type of things is when people get into the real conversations about Section two hundred and thirty, which which limits the liability of the of social media companies from facing any liability against what people post on their website. Is if you got rid of Section two hundred and thirty, all it would mean was that nobody would ever be able to post anything because they'd be so scared to let anyone ever post. So that they would be all under constant liability. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. Having Section 230 is good for everyone. Without Section 230, then, they, then Facebook doesn't really exist anymore, and you, can't, and you can't talk to anyone online. Dan, there's been 60 lawsuits before this one that have attempted basically the same argument and have all failed. Uh, is this one any different? It's not. And if, if you look at today's uh, sanctions hearings, the Rule 11 sanctions hearings against Linwood, and Sidney Paul and the attack of the judge for them not doing any uh, investigation of the affidavits uh, and whatnot. Uh, but you, Trump better hope that this uh, results in a better fate. Now, I mean, as, as Michael said, Section 230, I always uh, analogize it to the public park or public square. And if the public square was responsible for everything that was said or done in marches or in protests or people got up on their soapboxes and spoke, then that would shut down speech in, in this country. And we see it, you know, we see the uh, protests down in Cuba. We, we see that in communist regimes. Uh, I, I think Section 230, uh, as Mike, Michael said, is something that you have to keep in place uh, because it does protect uh, those platforms and allows people to pretty much spew anything they want. What you can't do, though, is incite or, or tell harmful lies that incite 
violence and whether you're the president or not. The other interesting thing with these cases is he filed them as class action. So number one, the terms of service on both sites say that California is the venue and you have to arbitrate. And number two, how the president could be a representative class member for anybody else. He was the president of the United States. So he had a little bigger platform than Dan Cotter or Joe Smith or anybody else that was on Twitter or Facebook uh, posting and, and has been banned or, or penalized like my brother always is. Didn't Pinterest ban him too? I, I'm not even joking about that. I, I, I so. thought I heard that. And why isn't Pinterest in this lawsuit? I, I just love the idea of former <laughs> President Trump. I don't care if you want to put together a board of knickknacks and nice bathroom decor. You cannot. That'd be great. <laughs> Uh, trying to find some connection with the next topic, which brings us to Stormy Daniels and uh, her former lawyer, that is, of Michael Avenatti, now sentenced to two and a half years in prison for attempting to extort Nike, Tina. I can't believe you didn't come up with the king of the segues didn't come up with a. a <laughs> it was a non segue was my segue, Rich. Oh, I get it. You, you flipped it. I see what you did. So Michael Avenatti, who is, I believe, Rich, um, that we can tout, among many things, that we were his last interview before the authorities, um, I guess, took control of his life, so to speak. Yeah, we're good. I'll just say that we're good at the last interviews. We had F. Lee Bailey's Lee last Bailey. interview. Avenatti, we're, you know, when, when no one else will book you in the legal world, come to Legal Face Off. That should be our new tagline. Well, either that or when you're in the prime of your career, maybe we put a hex on you. I don't know which which one it is, Rich. <laughs> it's it's either from here to jail or to the funeral home. Yeah. We hope it, we we hope there's a welcome back, Cotter three. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We may be pushing that one. So, as Joe mentioned, Avenatti was sentenced last week to 30 months for attempted extortion of Nike. He was convicted back in February of 2020 for three counts of threatening to publicly accuse Nike of illegally paying amateur players. Um, A couple, I mean, there are a lot of different things about this that we can discuss. Obviously, he faces two more trials for allegedly defrauding Stormy Daniels, as Joe mentioned, as well as a few of his other clients. Um, He's set to report to prison in, um, in September, so he's got a couple of months Um, But a very emotional outburst um, when the sentencing came down last week. Um, He was he openly wept. He got choked up. He um, mentioned how disappointing he was to his family, to his clients. Um, Just, you know, can't really think that this was going to end any other way, Rich, Um, to think that this guy was trying to run for president at one point. um, You know, that's what's I think the most remarkable Thing other than the fact that we had him on our show two days before he was arrested. So, yeah, we told him everything's fine. Don't worry. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't worry about a thing. Um, yeah, what are you going to say, I man? Avenatti, you know, it, it, it's funny because they played clips of all of the more liberal media, you know, touting his presidential run and how he was a bastion of democracy and how he was going to take on Trump. And now he's going to the slammer and uh, crying in court. So, uh, yeah, I mean, don't try to, what he did was pretty egregious, I think. And, uh, the lesson is, you know, when you're doing stuff like that, the bigger profile you have, the more likely you're going to get caught. It's always amazing. We cover this over and over again, how people think they're not going to get caught. And if 
if you learn nothing from listening to our podcast, it's like we have so many former federal prosecutors on. They love this stuff. And we always ask them, do you purposely go after? And they always say, no, no. Of course they do. They love it. If you're Avenatti and you're on every media outlet and then they are secretly wiretapping at the same time, the feds love that. They love making an example of buffoons and people who are, you know, uh, throwing it in your face. So uh, if you're going to bribe Nike, my advice is do so very quietly. Milstein, you're an Avenatti fan. I know. I mean, whatever. The guy. You were in charge of the run for president. He polled. Like, he had percentage points at one point for running for. It's like I read a a New York Magazine article about, well, I hope he doesn't win. He's going to bring some really good things to the debate. It's like, and what a fall from grace. He could have had it such an easy life, probably. You know, a little sliding door. If he would have just done things a little differently, he probably could have been maybe like America's lawyer. But now he's in jail. See you later. Speaking about America's lawyer, Dan Cotter, you you hold that title currently. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the fall from Evan Addy? I just think the whole thing's kind of uh, uh, comical in some ways. He was addressing someone that was extorting somebody else, his client, Stormy Daniels. And then if you jumped ahead a year or so more, uh, this, this extortion of Nike wouldn't have even been a thing probably because we're starting to see there's a lawsuit in, in Kentucky right now where a, a high school athlete is suing again for his name and image and likeness. And the, the Supreme Court, with its ruling in, in June uh, about uh, paying certain expenses, we're starting to see the, the NCAA opening up to compensate an athlete. So he may not have had much of a case if, if he was in 2020 COVID uh, times. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's something that it is interesting because he was out there. Uh, very aggressive, uh, you, you know, uh, whether he knew that he was being investigated or not, it just seems like um, kind of kind of foolish behavior. And as, as you know, Rich, prosecutors love this kind of stuff. And, and like you said, while they don't go after the celebrities, celebrities all, always make a bigger splash than just, just indicting somebody who's an average Joe and it gets some publicity. And then if they're running for something else or have other aspirations, it sure does help. I'll I'll take the segue for this one. Speaking of average Joes, Joe. No, he, he he said comical. I know I, that was my backup. He said he definitely said comical. So I I saw that. But I'll, all right, let's back up and let Joe do his thing. Go, Joe. Well, Daniel Cotter calls it comical, which brings us to Houston, where a comic book store rich has filed a lawsuit in comic book form. This is great. We're going to put it up here in a second for our watchers, but Third Planet Sci-Fi Superstore which is, as you mentioned, a comic book store in Houston, filed a lawsuit against the Crown Plaza, uh, I guess its neighbor, because it alleged that guests of the hotel were throwing trash from the balconies onto the store's roof, uh, fire extinguishers, trash, dishes, etc., cetera, uh, necessitating costly repairs. And then the great part is, instead of your traditional lawsuit, boring old words that we see all the time, because it's a comic book store, they actually filed a comic book lawsuit. Now, we think a lot of lawsuits are comedic on the show, but this one takes it to a whole new level. Emily, let's see if this works. Let's see the comic. Oh, Emily. <laughs> That's your cue. <laughs> Joe, sing sing for some of this dead air. See if you can fill it with. Well, ah, here we go. All right. Well, there are the words that are not quite as interesting as the comic for there we go so third planet versus crown plaza got kind of a stan lee vibe going here totally you see the 
you see the fire extinguishers, the spoons raining down on uh, the store. And this is plaintiff's third amended petition. I wonder what the first two petitions look like. And then we keep going. And then it explains it. I mean, to me, this is brilliant. You know, I, I rail against legalese all the time. Milstein will tell you how much I hate, you know, intricate legalese sounding words. What more do you need to know? You don't even need the words. The pictures tell everything. Look at this. Amazing penmanship, amazing cartoons, although I don't know what the car in the water has to do with it, but <laughs> that was a hurricane. I, I don't even think we got to the damages portion yet. Keep going. All right, here we go. You got the hotel, you got a car. Car on fire. Car on fire. Yep, there we go. Cutlery, glasses, dishware causing damage to the store. So Again, uh, I want to have these folks on the show on a future podcast because what a creative way of suing another business, Tina. Oh, I think it's fabulous. I mean, at the end of the day, why not, right? As long as you identify the cause of action with sufficient particularity, which I'm sitting here looking at these different frames and I have a pretty good idea what's going on here. Um, yeah. Why not? Right. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. It's very impactful. That's for sure. Dan, are these guys putting you out of business as someone who loves to write very detailed, intricate legal arguments in their pleadings? I don't think so. I, I, I like it as well. It, the picture does tell a thousand words. I think, you know, in, in this case, they did it tastefully. I think there could be a situation where you, uh, showed the adversary or the defendant in, in a different light that could be problematic, probably, you know, uh, casting aspersions on them or <clears throat> making them out to be villainous, you know. Uh, but but this, you know, I, I like it. It does. Like you said, you don't even have to read anything. You you see where the damages are. Uh, a, few of the, a few of the drawings, like the one with the cars in the water, like you, I, I don't quite understand that that piece. But I think it's brilliant. And I think, you know, there, there could be more of this. Um, you know, I know Judge Posner used to like having attachments and graphs and pictures of things attached to the briefs or he would do it himself. So I, I like it. I, th I think it could be used in the right situation. And your comic book store, why not use your craft to, to get some self-promotion as well? So I was uh, some of the commentators didn't note that, like, they didn't like how they made them out to be heroes and the hotel to be out as the villains. I thought that that maybe overset the line. But, like, I also think what's being missed here is the actual facts a little bit like the, it says that they, people kept throwing fire extinguishers in dishes, like kept. So like how many times were fire extinguishers launched off the crown plaza hotel onto the roof of this poor little comic book store? Like it just, can you imagine every day just being like a dish hits you in the head or a fire <laughs> extinguisher? Like it just seems crazy to me. Well, I think they should, I think they should have gone the other way and gotten more villainous and made the defendants like, you know, typical comic book henchmen and, uh, you know, made, made actual like comic book villains out of them. That's what I'm going to do in my next pleading. <laughs> awesome. Well, Rich, maybe, uh, our next topic, this woman should have created a Hanna-Barbera cartoon for her lawsuit, but, Seems like it didn't matter anyway. We go to Hillsborough, California, which is not the town of Bedrock, but one homeowner thinks so. She's getting a quarter of a million dollars from the town because they tried to yabba-dabba dump her Flintstone fortress. Yeah, great. <laughs> great intro, Joe. Too uh, much? Too much? No, that's, 
That's good. It's a comic book themed uh, LGB today. Yeah, this is a 2,700 square foot Flintstones house. It was built in 1976, made of six aeronautical balloons, uh, encapsulated in wire mesh and covered in concrete. Uh, this woman, Florence Fang, purchased the home right outside San Francisco. And she began to uh, make a prehistoric theme with a large Yabba Dabba Doo sign, dinosaur statues, and multicolored mushrooms, according to this lawsuit. Uh, it became even more noticeable when it was painted orange, much like the Flintstones uh, domiciles. And uh, this was the subject of this litigation, and the court ultimately held in her favor. And again, as you mentioned, awarded her damages. Um you know, as someone who maybe goes a little bit overboard during Halloween myself, as we've shared with our listeners, I have some sympathy for being that house in the neighborhood. Uh, inevitably, there's lawsuit. No one sued me yet, but I love the Flintstones. You know, grew up uh, pretending I was sick and then watching it in the afternoons. Um, so I uh, I side with the Flintstones house, Tina, on this one. As I did the court. The I love the Flintstones, too. And, you know, it seems like from a legal perspective, there had been some debate about whether or not, you know, she was going to be reaching some sort of agreement with the local land use authorities and so forth. So I do beyond just loving the Flintstones and sympathizing with her because of that. I do think that from a legal basis, she definitely had a defendable position. And so good for her. She's 90 years old, and she seems like she's pretty feisty. I want to get to know this lady, Rich. Yeah, for sure. Um, Dan, I always thought the uh, Fred Flintstone-Barney rubble relationship was inequitable. I felt like, you know, Barney was a little bit bullied by Fred, and uh, also the fact that they had to drive their vehicles with their own feet was always a little disturbing to me. But it worked, man. It worked. It makes makes your feet very callous and tough, I guess. It's like running barefoot, I would think. But uh, I agree. I, I, you know, I, I think the house is, is gaudy as it may be. It's her choice. And it looked like from some of the pictures that her interior is also kind of a Flintstones theme. So good for her. And I, I say she should fight this, whether it's 10,000 feet or 12,000 feet or whatever the outside exhibit is. But um, it's her her house. And so... If you don't like it, you know, sell and, and get out of there. I'm sure it's an attraction. I, I bet it brings a lot of people to the area to check it out, especially with the Yabba Dabba Do sign. And, you know, maybe maybe she should blast some of those phrases like, well, I'm home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think about the other lawsuit uh, we recently covered where the neighbor was playing, uh, you know, uh, 180 song over and over again. The court then ruled in the neighbor's favor. I think what Milsing, what differentiates these cases are, is it internal or external? Or how much of the uh, nuisance, alleged nuisance, is only on your own property or how much are you affecting neighborhoods? Now, they allege that this eyesore, as many felt it was, affects the property values of the neighbor. So there's definitely some argument to be made that you can't just do whatever you want on your own property. I didn't think that's true. I think that, like, this was going on for like 30 years. It's such a missed opportunity on the town's part. They should be like drawing the people into it, trying to get the revenue from it. Uh, but you guys want to, you want a Flintstone joke? Let's hear it. Uh, what's the difference between people in Dubai and Abu Dhabi? Yeah, I do. The people in Dubai don't like the Flintstones. The people in Abu Dhabi do. Yeah, but Dubai do. <laughs> How many Flintstone jokes do you know? <laughs> Uh, I, know some, I, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're arable. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, leave it at that. Uh, from Yabba Dabba Doo, we go to Dua Lipa. Uh, the British singer Tina is being sued for Instagramming a picture of herself that she did not take. Yes, and we have handled and discussed many a case like this over the last couple of years here on Legal Face Off. I always like talking about these cases because it's in my wheelhouse as an intellectual property lawyer. So Dua Lipa is getting sued, as Joe mentioned, by Integral Images that owns rights in the photograph. It's a picture from 2019 when she was in an airport wearing a hat. And she decided, like many famous people and not so famous people, to take the picture of herself and to share it on social media. And it seems like Instagram is where a lot of our famous folks tend to get hit lately. Um, And the issue here is that while it is a picture of herself, she doesn't own the actual rights in the photograph. And what I like to tell clients um, when they are similarly situated, both famous people as well as not, that just because you're the person in the picture, that doesn't mean that you have the right to disseminate or distribute or reproduce a photograph because the rights for the actual photo lay in the photographer or whoever is employing the photographer. So, Rich, this is just another one of those situations where a very famous person gets burned by their own notoriety. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people would be shocked to learn that you don't own the your own likeness in a photograph, but you're absolutely right. And, and that's a huge growing area of litigation, as you know, Tina. Um, you know, basically, don't ever use a photo of anything. That's the takeaway here, uh, because inevitably someone else owns its rights. And, you know, more than ever, some people derisively call them trolls. Some people, you know, call them litigants. But there will be people coming after you if you use any photo, even if it's your own photo. So be careful. I love this. Just, I love it. I love that the paparazzi are going to win this, score one for the good guy, because, you know, I think it's so easy to say that the celebrity should own it. But these celebrities, they love the paparazzi. As much as some of them have a rightful case against them, the 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 media attention that they gain from it is what drives their careers, is what drives them being famous. And that's what they want. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure maybe she did in this situation didn't know it. I'm, I'm sure there's some like air of like ignorance in the whole thing. Like I saw a picture of me. I, I thought I looked good. I posted on the internet. There may be that there may be some more sinister of like, they know they shouldn't do it, but you know, I'm totally fine with the paparazzi t- taking this lawsuit and winning it. And you know, the celebrities should know what the rules are. They benefit oh, the, off their pictures. Well, they, and the key is, and the flip side, sorry, Tina, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, they absolutely should know the rules. And I think that it's because it's social media and it's so easy to post, people just don't think about it, right? I mean, back in the day before social media, no one would ever get their hands on a photograph without going either to the, the media outlet that owned it or whoever their licensing agency was to get rights to um, reproduce or, or distribute the photograph. It's because social media is so easy and people live on it constantly that they just don't think before they post. Well, the key is now to make that photo an NFT, right? That's how really to protect it and to monetize it is make that photo an NFT, which is a whole, you know, other story, but uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Joe. Uh, Another photo that has someone in hot water is one with a popular cartoon character, Rich. Two families are suing Universal Studios after the main character of Despicable Me grew used what they call a racist hand gesture during a photo shoot. 
So, um, yeah, there, as you see on the screen, there are two different gurus, uh, who are allegedly flashing this white power symbol. Of course, Universal, the defendant, has denied uh, that they are flashing a symbol. They're saying that this is just a coincidence and certainly that they did not intend to um, inflict any damage. I mean, I guess the question here, Tina, that we often face is, what are the damages, right? Uh, the parents, in the one case, um the first case, the one that's the subject of the lawsuit, the child is um, uh, autistic, I believe, mm-hmm. and biracial. So obviously a little more sensitive to a white power gesture. But at the end of the day, I think it'd be hard to quantify what damages you, you experience as a result of this. Well, it's emotional distress, right? So, um, I mean, it, it's really, it, it is very offensive and it's also interesting. I, mean, I was talking to Sussler about this last night, getting ready for the show, just about the evolution of this gesture, how it went from, you know, used at a different angle to mean okay for many years. And now, you know, you sort of rotate your wrist. I mean, I've seen variations of it in terms of angle, but it, it's remarkable how over the past several years, I mean, NPR reported on it back in 2019 about the evolution of this gesture. And apparently in Brazil, I was told um, it is a very derogatory meaning as well. So um, it, it's, I, I think it's an emotional distress issue. I, I think it's really offensive. Um, I'm not surprised that this person's no longer employed. Um, by Disney or Universal, and um, it's um, it, it, it's really offensive. Well, I'm not I'm not denying that it would you know if that happened, that's a, a despicable act. But not, not to not to be use a pun, but um, Milstein, do you think these children, these young children, were aware at the time or afterwards of what this hand gesture means, so as to cause emotional distress? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I mean, I, they didn't know. It's crazy, you know. I think there's something that some people would think about is whether the intent of the person here doing it, whether he actually was doing it on purpose or not, and he meant it to be some racial disparity, which I think it's clear probably that it did. And it's very frustrating that this ever exists now that they've that people with this type of mentality of trying to take over such a basic symbol and now turn it into something so heinous. Um, but yeah, I mean, I you know, damages it. There is emotional distress. I think the kids is not the kids' emotional distress as much as the parents. Um, you know, I think that Disney will probably, or you know, it's Pixar will hopefully do the right thing at some point. I mean, and, and compensate somehow. I mean, they don't want to create a slippery slope. I'm sure if everyone gets a picture with you know something that they don't like, that trying to get compensation from it. But it's just, it's just you know something that leaves you a, a bad taste in your mouth when you haven't even talked about this type of stuff. And as Tina said, you know, there's been been a lot in recent years, even at the uh, Justice Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. There was discussion about whether uh, the one lady behind was was flashing the the, the signal or it was, so it is. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I think, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it'd be emotional distress, and, and I think Pixar will do the right thing. It's hard to do. Kind of Nailed it. <laughs> that was awesome. Nailed it, Rich. That was perfect. And uh, under the desk, under the desk, like creeping up at you, like what's going on? It's so strange. I mean, I've never, 
Uh, it's so strange. It's gray box. Dan, why don't you try your answer one more time? Sure. You know, this is, as Tina said, this has come up the last couple of years. And at the Justice Kavanaugh hearings, there was talk about whether or not uh, the one lady behind Justice Kavanaugh was flashing the sign. Uh, but this is egregious. And, and I think that uh, Pixar, Universal, or whomever uh, owns the Despicable Me uh, movies will do what's right and do the right thing. There is emotional distress probably for these families. Um, and, you know, so... What, what the damages are, I don't know. I mean, these seem to be private photos, but still, you know, that, that doesn't really matter, I don't think, in the, the equation. It's Daniel Cotter of Howard & Howard. Check out his book, The Cheap Justices. And Michael Milstein for joining us today as well from Bryce, Downey, and Lenkov. You can find out more about their firm at bdlfirm.com. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you, today. I'm somewhere in Area 51, somewhere in the, <laughs> nether, somewhere in the never-ending story out here. I, I'm, I'm stuck, but... Thank you, guys. Thanks Good for having to see you guys. Be well. Have a great week. That's been another edition of the Legal Face-Off podcast. Be sure to find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, or the ghost of Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. Thanks so much for listening today. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question, just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.